Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Hi everyone, welcome to Positivity Strategist. I'm your host, Robin Stratton-Burkessel. Today my guest is Dr. Mark Goulston. This episode with Mark is a gift to me. I feel privileged and honored to speak with such a truly inspiring human being. His stories and insights will touch you and possibly change your life. Here's a tiny snippet so you can hear Mark for yourself. And you're not trying to be rude. You're just trying to help them, as Warren uh, Bennis said, is you're trying to get uh, where they're really coming from, which is often uh, between the words initially. But first, we have our Positivity Lens activity from last week. Regular listeners know that I do this each week as a way to strengthen our positivity muscle and to hone our ability to view people and situations through multiple lenses. Remember what you focus on grows. Now last week my guest was Gloria Cirulli and that was positivitystrategist.com slash PS35. Gloria is clear that when you show interest in others, it starts a ripple effect. And how do you do this? Here are her three tips. I hope you practice them since we last met or since you last heard the show. So firstly, she said, smile. A smile will usually give you a smile back and that softens your face and your heart. It releases a host of positive emotions in your body and affects your mind and is mirrored in the other person. Her second tip was be fully present to the person with whom you're talking and show your interest. It's not about you being interesting, but being interested in them. And the third tip was be open to all, because when you are open to others, you never know what goodness can shine the light on or you can shine the light on and everyone has a significant story. And so now to this week's show, positivitystrategist.com slash PS36. Today, I'm beyond honored to have Dr. Mark Goldston as my guest. Mark, I'm really brimming with excitement in anticipation of our conversation. Thank you for being my guest on Positivity Strategist. Well, that makes two of us who are brimming. <laughs> Great, we have this connection. So Mark lives in Los Angeles and he's a business consultant, coach, speaker, former FBI hostage negotiation trainer and psychiatrist. And Mark is writing his seventh book. Now, I'm not going to give a whole list of all the all the previous six books, but just to name a couple, one is Get Out of Your Own Way, Overcoming Self-Defeating Behavior. And there was a follow-up to that, Get Out of Your Own Way at Work and Help Others Do the Same. And then another book he wrote, he co-authored with, Doc, with Dr. John Ullman, and that's called Real Influence, Persuade Without Pushing and Gain Without Giving In. And the book that we're going to focus on a little bit today is called Just Listen. 
Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone, because it was recently republished as a paperback. But before Mark and I start our conversation, let me also say that if you search for Mark Goulston, Dr. Mark Goulston on the web, you'll find he pops up everywhere because he blogs for Huffington Post, Psychology Today, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company and Business Insider. And you'll be happy that you start reading some of his stuff because it's highly influential and will really make a difference in your life. And he's featured frequently in major media such as the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Newsweek, Time, NPR, CNN, Fox News, and the Today Show. And if you actually look for Mark on YouTube, you'll see a number of videos where Mark is featured as well. So when Mark and I had our prep call just last week, we agreed to go with the flow in our conversation and see where the energy takes us. And having just said that, I'd like to start, Mark, with your most recent book, Just Listen, Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone. Now, I read this book and I absolutely loved it because I learned so much about myself. I'm implementing many of the recommendations and tips and strategies you suggest. And you make the science about the brain and emotions so accessible, which really excites me. And it's highly practical, as I said. So, Mark, I'm going to hand over to you and I would love you, perhaps, if we could start with how come this particular book came about? Well, I think as I looked out at the world, what I saw was people talking at, over, and even when they're talking to each other, that people weren't really being that engaged. And what I discovered is that there's there's as many skills to listening as there are to communicating. And when most people think of communicating, they think of talking, they don't think of listening. But it all actually started in my work as a suicide specialist many years ago. I used to be a high-level suicide interventionist, and one of my first mentors was a pioneer in the study of suicide. He started the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington and Los Angeles. His name was Dr. Ed Schneidman, and he would be at the inpatient units at UCLA and still suicidal people, but not acutely so, needed to be discharged. But in order to be discharged, there needed to be a doctor willing to see them. And the residents didn't want to see them because they were still suicidal. So Ed would go up and meet with these uh, still suicidal, but not acutely suicidal people. And he would always make the same call to me. And he would call and I could see the, uh, uh, the, my pager go off and I knew it was him and he would always say the same thing. He'd say, Mark, this is Ed. I'm with this lovely young woman. I'm with this handsome young man. Mark, they're in a lot of pain. You could help them, Mark. See them. And then he'd refer them to me. And my wife uh, is inclined to say that for 10 years, we never, I never got to see all of a movie because whenever we'd go out, I'd be beeped. So that was my life. But there was one case especially, and I'll call her Nancy, who had made three attempts and I was seeing her for six to eight months and I didn't think I was helping her at all. And uh, she had been also hospitalized several times before I saw her. Uh, But in that six months, that was the longest she'd gone without an attempt. And there was one day, a Monday, when I was seeing her, and I hadn't slept for two days because I'd been working at a a state psychiatric hospital on the weekend, moonlighting, which is uh, working to cover the doctors uh, at the hospital to pick up some extra money. And so there I was, over 
tired and sleep deprived. And there I was Monday with her. And if you can imagine, I would sit in my room and she would look 30 degrees to the left or right of me. And her eyes looked really dull all the time. And on this particular session, uh, suddenly what happened is all the color in the room turned to black and white. And I was young and I was kind of, you know, interested in things. And I said, wow, this is kind of interesting. And then the black and white started to melt and get very chilling. And I thought, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. Now, I'm a medical doctor. And so I did a neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my knees. I'm, you know, looking at my finger in front of my face. And, and it wasn't rude because she never made eye contact. And then I had this crazy idea that I wasn't having a stroke or a seizure, but that I was looking at the world and feeling the world through Nancy's eyes. Mm. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I might keep to myself. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And then I thought to myself, dang, I just gave her permission to do it. And it was the first time she made eye contact with me. And she looked at me and I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. Uh, I'm overdue for my next attempt. And, and I got a little paranoid and I said, what are you looking at? And what are you thinking? And then she looked at me really intently. And when she looked into my eyes, I realized that I had seen the world through her eyes mm-hmm. and felt it. And she said to me, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And I think she gave up her suit. Well, she didn't kill herself. She went on uh, to get a PhD. And in that session, all the color came back, the room came back. And in her life, she came back. So I've been trying to figure that out for 35 years. And in just listen, I think I've figured out what happened and how to do it so that other people can do it. And, uh, and, and a happy uh, coincidence is that I've become a neuroscientist in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, something that you, you and I think other readers of Just Listen have found very interesting is when I go into the neuroscience And specifically, and I'm guessing this is going to be something that is new to your listeners and I hope will be interesting to them, is I've become very fascinated with an area of our brain or or types of neurons in our brain called mirror neurons. Mm. And mirror neurons were discovered in the late 1980s in macaque monkeys. And they were first called monkey see, monkey do neurons because it seems that they were responsible for imitation Mm -hmm. and how monkeys would imitate each other and even imitate uh, other primates. And they've been discovered inside human beings and they seem to be associated not only with imitation but with learning and with empathy. Uh, And so when someone yawns or someone uh, cuts themselves on a piece of paper, you feel it. And what's mediating that are your mirror neurons. And what's even more interesting is they seem to be deficient in people who have autism. So autistic people are not able to mirror others. They can't pick up social cues. And something that, a term that I've created uh, that 
uh, that I believe is accurate, although I don't have the research to substantiate it, but I think other people understand it, is something that I call the mirror neuron gap. And what that means is when you feel that you've been caring about the outside world and you're conforming your emotions and your psychology to the outside world and their needs, there builds up a gap and a hunger to have the outside world do the same for you. Mm-hmm. And, it's not, and I don't mean this to be superficially like scorekeeping. It's just that the more we twist ourselves inside out to care about the outside world, the more we want the outside world to care about us. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons when someone is kind to us in an unsolicited way, we often tear up. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is when someone does that and they eliminate the mirror neuron gap, we feel whole and the relief we feel from feeling whole and the relief from feeling alone and lonely overwhelms us. And so we cry with relief. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. In fact, you, you say um, that there's a dissolving of the barriers between self and others when we feel really heard or well, feel well, understood. Well, you take to the next thing. When we feel felt. Uh, and uh, there's an anecdote that uh, I often refer to where there was a CEO I was seeing and it was difficult to get an appointment with him because he was very busy. And I remember I was there in front of him and, the, and I could tell that the last thing he wanted to do was meet with me. There was something on his mind. There was kind of an agitation. And I can be a little bit bold, sometimes flirting with brazen. So imagine this. You're the CEO and you have this person. You, you don't even know why he's in your room, me. And this is what I said to him. Uh, after about three minutes. And I said, hey, how much time you got for me? (laughs) (laughs) Brazen. Brazen. And then that got his attention. He looked at me, he said, what? I said, look at your appointment book. How much time you got for this? And and he's fussy. He says, 20 minutes. And I, I, what that meant to me is I had 20 seconds. And then I said, um, I said, look, uh, what we're about to talk about is worth your undivided attention. And you can't give it to me because there's something on your mind that's really important. And I think what I'd like you to do or like us to do is let's cancel our meeting now, but take the remaining 16 minutes and take care of whatever's on your mind. And we'll either reschedule this or you can tell your assistant to never let me in again because I've been so rude. But take the next 16 minutes and just take care of whatever's on your mind because it's not fair to me. It's not fair to other people. It's probably not fair to you. Just do it. Right. And then he looked at me and he started to tear up. Mm-hmm. And I said, to, and it was like a big footballer. I mean, must have been 260 pounds and his trophies behind him. And I said to myself, Mark, you promised yourself you wouldn't make these grown men cry outside of your psychiatry <laughs> office. You're doing it again. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me and he says, you know, you've known me for three minutes and you know something that other people don't know because I'm very private. My wife's having a biopsy and it doesn't look good. And my wife is stronger than me. And she said, you just go to work. And I'm at work, but I'm really not here. At which point I went from brazen, I guess, to compassionate. And I said, look, be with her. Don't be here. You shouldn't be here. Uh, 
know, take off the rest of the day. You know, you're not doing that well here. And then he was like one of these big St. Bernard dogs who came in out of the rain and he just shook his shoulders and he went, <clears throat> and then he got very scented and calm and he said, uh, I'm not as strong as my wife, but I'm pretty strong and I'm all here and you've got my undivided attention and you've got your full 20 minutes. And after that, as you can imagine, you know, I've had a relationship with him for years. Mm. So I think that's the power of helping someone feel felt. Um, they just lean into it. Mm. Yeah, and that's one of the nine uh, principles that you talk about in your book. There are nine of these um, principles about how you can really um, improve your listening and your relationships with people. And um, there's a little another quote I want to um, provide from your book. You're actually paraphrasing your mentor, Warren Bennis, Mm -hmm. And what you say is that um, Warren said to you, when you really get where people are coming from and they get that you get them, they're more likely to let you take them where you want to take them or where you want them to go. So this is what you're saying, right, from these two illustrations, these two stories that you've just shared, the suicide one and then working with this um, executive Exactly. And one of my other favorite quotes from Warren, who passed away, uh, and I miss him every day, um, uh, is, be a first-class noticer. Mm. And what he meant by that is that noticing is different than looking, watching, and seeing. When you're looking, watching, and seeing, you're just an observer. You're not a participant. But when you're a noticer, you really connect with what you're noticing. So for instance, right now, I'm noticing that my printer is next to me. And I've had this printer for five years. And I'm noticing that I didn't take all the packing tape off it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that right now. And so I never, I never, obviously, I didn't notice that. The nice things about noticing is it takes you out of your yourself and your self-preoccupation. A good friend of mine, a pastor, was interviewing a woman named Anna, I think Anna Gunn, I'm not sure, but she, she ran, I think she has a site called Anna Does America, and she ran across America for, to support certain, I think, veteran-related charities. And he asked her, how did you keep from giving up? And what she said is, I just notice things as if I was a blind person seeing for the first time. Right. So as I was running, I would notice trees and I would go, that's an amazing tree. Or I would notice stores and I'd say, that belongs to a family. They've probably been there years. Or even I'd notice dog poo on the sidewalk and say, that was a very big dog. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and she said, by noticing things outside yourself, it actually frees you to be very present. And I think this is really important to our listeners because there's a real push now towards understanding customer experience. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, one of the best ways to understand customer experience is to be a first-class noticer. One of my favorite companies is a company called IDEO, I-D-E-O. It's one of the lead design and innovation companies in the world. It's in Silicon Valley. It's very much involved with designing a lot of the early uh, Apple uh, techno technological devices. I think they designed the mouse initially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But the way they work, it's fascinating, is they have a team made up of sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, computer programmers, historians. And what they say is go out in the world from your point of view and notice what people are smiling at and, and delighted about and notice what frustrates them. And when they have those expressions, notice what they're noticing and then come back and tell us what you see. And I think that's a, a, a fascinating way to go out there and, and actually notice customer experience instead of going through a lot of these analytics that people do. Yeah, I think that's great. Two things have come up for me, Mark, when you were talking about that. One is Jürgen, who is my business partner and life partner, um, started life as a photographer, and he now, you know, and he worked professionally as a photographer for some time, and now he, we just do it together. So most of our vacations are, uh, we go off and we just really love being photographers. And I have learned through his eyes or his coaching that photography is an amazing way to do exactly what you're describing, where you notice the fine details. It really just opens you up to all sorts of other possibilities and connections. And can also, at the same time, I find, sort of calm you down and be very present to even your own breathing and what you're doing in that moment. Now, that is certainly true. And in my trainings of companies uh, on listening, uh, because sometimes you're dealing with people who are, well, they still don't get it. They, they, they understand that they need to listen better, but sometimes you need to give them something tactical and tangible that they can do. And something that people seem to find very helpful is I, I say when you're in conversation with people, notice four things. And the four things are notice hyperbole. So when they use words like uh, uh, amazing, uh, awful, terrific, notice those. Mm-hmm. Notice inflection. So when people's voices go up, notice that. Mm-hmm. And then if Uh, For more advanced noticing, notice adverbs and adjectives because an adverb is a way of embellishing a verb when the verb isn't enough. So when you say, we need to do this quickly, that's an adverb. And notice adjectives, which are a way of embellishing a noun. So when you say, this is an amazing opportunity, Mm -hmm. that's different than this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And And the reason for that is I say that when you when you don't notice or respond to those, you're like the competition. You're not distinguishing yourself. And really what you want to do is, is have people open up more and more. So one of the, part of the advice that I give people, uh, consultants or coaches, is that when they're in a conversation with people and they're drawing things out of people, there's going to be a point at which the other person says, so what do you think? And my suggestion is never answer a first question directly. Instead, say, I can tell you what I think, but say more about we need to do this quickly. Mm-hmm. Or say more about the amazing opportunity. Nice. And what you'll notice is they start to open up more and more. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you're in person with them, and even if you're on the phone, even as I'm talking about it, I'm on the phone with you and I'm using my hands right now as gestures. Mm-hmm. You know. And what you'll notice is as you uh, use what I call conversation deepeners by saying, say more about the amazing. 
uh, you'll see that they start to raise their hands from their hips to their abdomen because they're using their hands to express more of what, they're, uh, what they feel about their words. And you can actually see them invest more of themselves in the conversation, which is going to differentiate you from the competition who may just answer one of their questions directly. And, and you're not trying to be rude. You're just trying to help them, as Warren uh, Bennis said, is you're trying to get uh, where they're really coming from, which is often uh, between the words initially. You talked about being a good connector and a good connector notices. And I remember when we, when we spoke last week, Mark, you shared a story about when you were at university or college. And I think that became apparent to you about somebody really noticing you or connecting with you, your professor. Can you share that story? Because that was a really powerful story. Well, you know, it's interesting because... Uh, after people hear the suicide story, you know, sometimes people are curious that where did you, where did you learn to do that? And I think sometimes you learn to do things because they were done for you or to you. And I think one of my greatest personal accomplishments, uh, you know, beyond the family and the children and, and, and a marriage of 37 years, which is quite an accomplishment, <clears throat> is that I dropped out of medical school twice and I finished. I don't know anyone who dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I think I hit a wall and I was reading material, and but I couldn't hold on to it or retain it or learn it. And so I took a leave of absence and worked in a blue collar job, which was some of the best and most the most honest work. And I still miss the purity and simplicity of it all. And so my mind came back somewhat, and then I started again. And then when I came back after about three months, my mind left me. I was highlighting every book. All my books were all yellow, hoping that I could hold on to the words. And the second time I dropped out, the dean of the school, who was about finances, uh, he had met with me, and I didn't even remember the meeting that much. But then the dean of students... Dean William McNary, who we all affectionately called Mac, called me, um, and I got uh, and on the phone he said, "Mac, Mac, this is Mac, Mac, this is Mac." We were in Boston, <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, "I got a letter here from the dean. I think you better come in here, Mac. I think we got to read this thing." And so I go in there, and I, I came from somewhat of a challenging childhood. We'll just leave it at that. And, uh, you know, decent parents, but they were probably too busy to, you know, there wasn't as much tenderness because they were kind of busy. We'll leave it at that. But I think people listening might relate to that. Mm -hmm. So there it is. I come in there and he says, and he reads the letter and the letter is from the dean of the school. And it says, I've met with Mr. Goulston. We discussed an alternate career, perhaps the cello. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't, I, I don't remember that. Uh, and so I am advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw, meaning let's get rid of him. Uh, he's not flunking out, so, uh, so we have to find another, another way to get rid of him. And I can understand that because every time I took a year off, they would lose matching funds mm -hmm. for the empty seat. Mm -hmm. 
And at that point, uh, I'm reading it, and I'm not quite understanding it. And I, I said, what does this mean? And uh, Mac said to me, Mark, you've been kicked out. And I will tell you, and I've come to see it as a miracle. Um, I mean, a literal miracle. And, uh, and it was my good fortune that I didn't get sarcastic because I didn't have the energy to cover up. I didn't say, they can't do that to me. I didn't flunk anything. I was, I was past that. And it was also my good fortune that I don't think I got very pathetic with, oh, woe is me. Instead, when he said that, in about 20 or 30 seconds, I started to cry and I just remember touching my cheek with the tears and, and looking at my hands. It was almost like my eyes were bleeding. And I think what it was is I was 100% pure, dyed in the wool, vulnerable. Mm. And if he had shamed me, if he had sort of uh, criticized me, if he had done, I don't know where I would be. But instead, uh, Dean McNary, I think, I, I believe that he was an angel mm -hmm. sent into my life to save it. And instead he said this, he said, Mark, you didn't screw up, meaning you're passing everything, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think this school would one day be glad that they gave you a second chance. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm crying even more because I, he's, he's pummeling me with kindness. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then he said this to me, and I think it changed everything. He said, Mark, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do another thing in your life, I would be proud to know you mm -hmm. because you have goodness in you, Mark. And you don't under understand or realize how much the world needs that goodness and you won't realize it till you're 35 but you have to make it till you're 35 and at that point I am just I am just crying I mean I I, I, I don't know what to make of this comfort and, and and I think he reached underneath me or into me and so I could I could fall apart and let go of my coping mechanisms of sarcasm and whatever. I could just, I could just lean into his love. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at me and he said, look at me, Mark, because I was looking down and I was tearing up. I'm not too far away from it now. And he points his finger at me and he said, you deserve to be on this planet, Mark. Do you understand me? And then I nodded and he said, and you're going to let me help you. And at that point, he arranged an appeal. And I think, and I guess the promotions committee was able to see something in me that he saw in me. But I think that changed everything. And that's it's interesting because I've come full circle to a mission, which I'm hoping to turn into a movement in my life. And something I've also discovered is I think there's three stages of life. The first part of our life, when we're young, after we're adults, is doing what we should do. That's building credibility. Yeah, you know, instead of being a rebel without a cause, go out there and actually be responsible and do what you're supposed to do and do an excellent job of it. And then I think the next part of our life is doing what you could do, which is fulfilling your potential. It's you know feeling you know all your competence and putting it to work and achieving and all that. 
And I'm at a stage of my life where I'm doing what I'm meant to do. I'm doing what I was born to do. And, uh, you know, and that's how I'm going to ride it out uh, for the rest of my life. Mm. Wow. And I know you have plans for that. So going back to your story with the dean and he reached out and deep into your soul and pulled something out of you or made you connect with something inside you, what do you really value about yourself? The fact that, you know, you're now saying that I'm doing what I'm, I w- I'm born to do. What is it you truly, truly appreciate about you and how you've been touching people and the way that you've lived your life up to this point? Well, um, I'm trying to appreciate things about me, but I, I, every day I have what I call Schindler moments, like from Schindler's List, like mm-hmm. I could do more. And this mission that I've started is healing the world one conversation at a time. Mm-hmm. And so it's teaching other people uh, to follow. And I've come up with something called the diamond rule. We've heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And then there was something called the platinum rule, do unto others as they would like to be done unto. And, and uh, I've come up with the diamond rule, which is a do unto others as someone who loved you did unto you. And someone asked me, why, why the diamond rule? And I said, well, diamonds are forever. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can forever pay it forward, what those special people did on to you, it, if we all did that, uh, in fact, if we all, if everybody's listening, if all of you can think of someone who stood up for you when you couldn't, stood by you in a crisis and didn't let you fail, or stood up to you because they believed in you and pushed you to do something or stopped you from doing something foolish. And, uh, and with Dean McNary, I hit the, uh, super, uh, the super trifecta. He did all four of those. I think if you can pause, think of those, that person and the best way to honor them, I think what you'd realize it's to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And if you could do that in your life, if you could talk with another person every day in one of your conversations, I think if we did that, it would change the world in an instant. Mm. So it's a modest goal, I guess. Yeah, and valuing yourself about that is... Well, I'm tr- I guess I'm try- trying to do that. But again, I think what happens is um, I, as I look out in the world... Uh, as I get older, rather than becoming numb to the pain in the world, to the headlines, to the, mm-hmm. what I see in the eyes of people, it hurts more. And, 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 and I see that, you know, what they need is for someone to do unto them or do with them what I did with Nancy and what Dean McNary did with me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I feel compelled to get this out there and it's a challenge. It's a challenge because, um, 
you really, I think you have to get people to remember those experiences. In fact, I've been giving programs called Dare, uh, Dare to Care, how to, how to Build a Heartfelt Organization. And I do have a site called Heartfelt Leadership, which has a lot of uh, what my partner and co-founder and I are doing. And in those meetings, which are often with CEOs and leaders, I, I actually go through uh, the story with Dean McNary. And then I have people at tables share stories of someone who uh, uh, stood up for them, by them, or to them. And within 45 seconds, half the room is crying. Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple exercise. I mean, I'm giving it out. You don't have to pay me. Just do it in your organization. It's a very simple. Uh, and then the takeaway from that is uh, when I ask people to partner with each other and then make a commitment with each other, who in your organization or your life are you going to pay it forward to? What are you going to do between now and the next meeting? And what's really uh, the best follow-up is find the person you spoke about or their next of kin and give them a power thank you. Mm. And a power thank you has three parts. Uh, thank them for what they did specifically so Dean McNary died 20 years ago, but if I were to thank him or as I have his next of kin, part one would be, uh, you know, your dad uh, stepped in there and intervened and uh, protected me from the world and myself. The second part of a power thank you is the effort it took for them. Well, Dean McNary was just a PhD and the promotions committee were heads of hospitals. It was the dean of the school. He was the least powerful person there. And he appealed what the dean had directed them to do, which was to ask me to withdraw. Right. So he took them all on for me. And then the third thing is, and if you say do this correctly, you should be emotionally choked up and I'm going to do my best not to get that way because we still have to finish the interview is you tell them what it personally meant to you. And Dean McNary, wherever you are, what it meant to me is you, uh, you, you, you saved my life, but you gave me, you gave me my purpose. Mm. You, 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 and I have to pay it forward. So, so I, 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 I guess that's um, where I'm at. And what's interesting is, uh, as you say, I see recognizing, noticing that I have trouble acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. I think as I just uh, imagine Dean McNary up there in heaven, he's smiling at me and he's saying, Mark, let it go. You're doing a good <laughs> job. It's okay. You know, have a good day for, for crying out loud. Yeah. So I'll try and take that in. Yeah, that's lovely. So it's patreon.com forward slash Dr. Mark Goulston right is where people can learn more about your initiative, Heal the World One Conversation at a Time. Correct? Yeah, and, and, right, and it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And the way we're doing that is we have conversation catalysts. And so up there is a free little video called What Your Girlfriend Wants You to Know. And so the videos are all about a minute long and it's my voice with a certain amount of passion and then, but it's represented as text. But the idea is when you share this with a girlfriend who may not want your solutions or advice, uh, it can stir a great conversation or she can give that to you. Uh, uh, next up in the queue, which uh, I'm very excited about is what your teenager 
want you to know. And this is uh, where I take on the voice of a teenager who's in a very dark place and doesn't want you as their parent to, to see them as a problem needing a solution. What they really want is, is to not feel so alone and how horrible they feel. Mm-hmm. So what we're hoping is these little videos people can share with people and start a conversation uh, with that other person say, is this how you feel? And, uh, and we're very excited about the next one because it will save lives and that, that, that's the next up. But what we need is some support because there's some production costs. The person who's partnering with me, this is what he does for a living. He's an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker. And so if people find value in this, uh, you know, we hope that they'll support us. And at various levels of support, they're various things that they get, you know, um, and uh, all the way up to if they want to support me uh, to the tune, I think, of 2000 a month, I will come to your company and do a whole program. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, well, we'll definitely have the, um, the link to that on the show notes page for this episode, which is PS35. That's for, for your um, episode, Mark. So, you know, one of the things that um, was such a delight and joy for me to find out is when I read this book and I had this introduction to you, to find that it truly speaks to who I am in the world. And um, as you know, the title my website suggests, it's all around what is positivity and how we can bring more of that into us for ourselves and into our relationships and into our work. And um, as you know, that I also um, am very... I value very much the appreciative inquiry lens through which I do my work because it does invite people to tell stories about when they were at their best, whatever the situation, whether they are in leadership or team building or when they rose above adversity. And so, you know, the way that you're working, what you're doing really means something to me because it seems like we're on the same path and there are so many of us doing that and yet you know the world still likes to look at the world as a problem you know through our analytical education and you know the default traditional mindset that we have is that we you know I talk to MBA students and they say well I'm a great problem solver Um, and it's like well I'm yeah I know that's true and it's how you choose to look at a problem Yet people seem to resonate more with the language that seems to be deficit-based. So I would love your perspective on that. And, you know, where I'm going with that is what does positivity mean to you? So I would love, us, I would love to have you share, just talk about those two things, why we go for the, the pain and the deficit and how can we elevate positivity to have an equal footing in the world? Well, I'm going to give you a coaching tip. Can I give you a coaching tip? I would, On this? I would love that. <laughs> I'm all open. Uh, okay, so b- because uh, we've talked about this, that the, uh, that the world focuses on problems, and I think one of the reasons that the world tends to focus on problems is that often the people who are in power tend to be analytical problem solvers as opposed to emotionally experiencing much of anything. And so I don't think they're trying to be negative. They're just problem solvers. And, and in fact, in the technology world, you are, you are given plaudits and uh, wonderful uh, appreciation when you find defects in a product before it's launched. So it's, 
so there seems to be a move, a, a focus on that. But I think one of the things you might do is you, you could say to people, now, how many of you feel that you have some negative things that are bogging you down? And let them raise their hands. You could say, okay, uh, uh, humor me. Let's parking lot that. So let's get back to that. But I want to try a different exercise. And the exercise is, uh, we're not ignoring the negative thing, but I, but, uh, I want to try a different exercise. Let's focus on something positive. Let's focus on a positive memory. Let's focus on actually remembering it specifically. Because when you can remember it specifically and tell the person right next to you it, whatever it was, and they can actually see it through your eyes, you're going to re-experience the thing. So why don't we share uh, a very positive when when uh, when you were at your best mm-hmm. uh, moment, and let's just do that. And I'm not ignoring the other, but let's just do that. And I think what you'll notice, and what they'll notice, is when they get into the positive framework, what happens is the deficits within them start to fill up, and so in, and their cups will immediately become half full. And then I think what you'll see in the room is it'll, it'll flex it into, God, maybe we can transcend the negative with the positive. And so after you bathe them all in <clears throat> this incredible uh, rec- uh, re-experience of the positive, I think if you were to say, oh, 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 by the way, how many of you want to go back to that negative stuff? <laughs> What you'll find out is none of them want to. And then, and then the breakthrough is, well, what just happened? Because before we kind of put that aside, many of you were thinking, oh, we have to address these problems. We've got to solve them. We've got to address the negativity. We've got to do such and such. And now we just did a simple exercise in less than five minutes. And God, it seems like unanimously you wanted to focus on the problems. And now unanimously you want to you know, go on from where you're at right now. Is, isn't that amazing? Mm. Yeah. Does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, from a psychological perspective, when we access our positive emotions, they open us up to a de- very different kind of reality. So it makes absolute sense what you're saying here. Well, I think it goes back to the mirror neuron gap thing. Yeah. I think, what you know, what happens is when... Uh, we feel the mirror neuron gap, we feel a missingness, and that often uh, drives us. Uh, it's interesting, uh, 15 minutes ago when you were picking up that, gee, Mark, you got to give yourself a break. I mean, you do so so much good for the world, you got to feel like okay about that. And what was interesting is when I re-experienced thinking of Dean McNary and where he is, and I could see him with his Irish accent saying, Mark, let it go, let it go already. You know, you've done okay. I just smiled inside and I let it go because the mirror neuron gap was gone. So please feel free to use that concept in any of the positivity you work mm. that you do. Yeah. What does positivity mean to you? I think positivity means a a willingness and an eagerness to believe. Uh, there's a uh, there's a saying that I have to try to flip audiences. And one, is, and what it is, is that a, a, a skeptic is someone who is reluctant to believe. A cynic is someone who refuses to believe, or you could say positive, be positive. And a 
Skeptic is someone who once believed was positive and was disappointed. A cynic is someone who once believed and was positive and was deceived and devastated. But inside all skeptics and most cynics is a desire to believe and be positive again, but they need to be able to do it without the fear of being disappointed or deceived again. And when I share that with people, I say, how many agree with that? And they all raise their hands. And then when I ask them, well, why do you think it is that all skeptics and most cynics want to be positive, want to believe? And what the discussion basically says is, well, because, you know, to only be safe, you're going to end up sorry. Mm -hmm. To not believe in anything is going to, uh, uh, is not going to be a very good life. And and because, uh, and you're from Britain? Australia. Oh, I'm sorry, Australia. That's sorry all right. But, but uh, <laughs> says something about my well-rounded accent. Well, 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 well I'm I'm going to ask you to to feel British for a second because <laughs> I was actually an advisor to the show Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire, and it was actually produced by the uh, people who do the uh, uh, do the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. And what happened is there was this. There was this fellow, and uh, there were all these women. And at the end of the, I think, the two-day show, you know, he proposed to someone. And it turned out to be sort of a a shambles. But uh, I was on with the BBC as soon as the show ended. And and again, before it had turned into something negative. And there I was in, uh, in Los Angeles, and I was on the BBC's morning show on television uh, by uh, satellite. And they said to me, they said, they said, Dr. Goulston, you know, uh, you know, this seems like a fairy tale. This seems like it's very, uh, you know, you know, just totally frivolous. And this seems like so much Hollywood. Mm. And I remember uh, I said to them, I said, you know, if I had the chance to be naive, to believe uh, that love at first sight can happen, mm to believe that all your dreams can come true or the choice of being cynical, bitter, and British, I think I'm (laughs) going to pick being American. (laughs) And they looked at each other and they said, let's have them on for the next segment. (laughs) Well done. That's so good. You know, that reminds me because I do have this British Anglo-Saxon heritage, right? It's my cultural imprint. When I first came to the States and then after some time I went off and, you know, did my certification appreciative inquiry and so on, I did say to the thought leader, David Cooper, writer at the time when I was doing my course, I said, you know, I actually am here because I really question whether this is too Pollyanna-ish because is it just American feel good? So there I was, the cynic, right? Mm-hmm. And I found that when, you know, when you can work with these more more life-affirming states of mind and you look at the value of positive emotions and the things of kindness and gratitude, all the stuff that you've described in some of your stories, um, you do have an inclination to pay it forward and to want to actually help others come to that frame of reference and to live their lives in a much more joyful, easier state. And it takes work right? Because you don't know what the circumstances are of people. And so 
you know, that comes back full circle to really having the empathy and closing that, that mirror neuron gap. So you just inspired another tip. This is what you're going to do at your next uh, meeting. Okay. What you're going to say to them is, uh, uh, because what I've discovered is when you can articulate the negative that people may be feeling towards you in a playful, engaged way, you disarm them. Mm-hmm. So if you were to say to the audience, you could say, you know, this is about positivity and appreciative inquiry and accentuating the positive and whatever, but raise your hands if any of you think that this is a little bit too Pollyannish. Mm-hmm. And so you're inviting them to do that. And they're all going to look at each other and say, oh boy, she's setting herself up. And then when they all do that, um, what you say uh, is, I want you in unison to say the following to me. I want you to say it aloud. And, and you tell them this, repeat after me. I really would like to be more positive and embrace the positive, but I just can't let go of the negative. <laughs> and so I want you to lean into that and feel it as much as you can. You know, and hit me with your most negative, you know, yes, but. And then when they do that, I'd say, do it again. Let's lean into it. And then when they do that, what you're doing is you're helping them get it off their chest. You could say, can I ask you a favor? Uh, uh, I'm not going to ignore it, but could you put that aside for a little bit and let's try something else? Beautiful. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful way to um, bring our conversation to a close today. I'm hoping that will continue in the future. But you've shared so much with us, Mark, today. I wonder if there's something that you would like to add by way of closing, something that hasn't come up that um, I haven't given you the opportunity or there's something that you would like to share with us right now. Um, Think of, well, I'll just reiterate something. Think of someone who was there for you Uh, And what they did, reach out to them and tell them what it meant, but pay it forward to someone in your life. Mm -hmm. When I did a survey on the internet and LinkedIn, what would be the effect on people around you and people in your company if you did onto them what someone did onto you who stood up for you, by you, or to you, what would be the positive effect on their morale and their productivity, little moderate or huge, I got 100% huge responses and 50% of them were in capital font. Hmm. So give it a a try, Hmm. see what happens. I will, thank you. And I have this segment on the show which is called the Positivity Lens Activity. And so I invite my listeners to try something out that my guests share because I want it not just to be in their head, but for them to begin to embody some of these practices that can increase more positive experiences in our life. So this is something definitely that I will make a note of and invite people to experience it also, not only me, but for the listeners to try it out. So Mark, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful conversation. And please notice that I use the adjective wonderful twice. (laughs) Say more about wonderful twice. And what you're going to say is, I was going to say it a third time, but we're running out of time. (laughs) It's full of wonder. And that's what, if you really kind of want to participate fully in the world and in life, it is full of wonder. It is amazing. It is an amazing (laughs) life that we have. We, We need to enjoy it more every day.
That's beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Mark Galston, for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Now to this week's Positivity Lens activity inspired by Mark Galston. Remember that you can download these tips from the show notes page of this episode, positivitystrategist.com slash PS36. Mark truly encourages us to pay it forward. It's about doing unto others as someone who cared about us did unto us. That someone could be someone who stood up for you when you couldn't or stood by you in a crisis and didn't let you fail or stood up to you because they believed in you so much and pushed you to do something or they cared so much they stopped you from doing something foolish. Now the best way to thank them and honour them is to pay it forward. And if we could model that behaviour or thinking that changed us for the better, we could transform someone else's life and we could change the world in an instant. Now remember, if you enjoy this podcast and the wisdom and insights of my guests, please visit iTunes and give us a rating and review because that's how it works. The higher the rating and the more positive the reviews, this show rises to the top, helping others find it. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember, what you focus on grows, so grow towards your best. Best.